This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On a freezing morning in 1973, a teenage boy was abducted by a serial sex offender and kept chained in a subterranean box buried in the woods. Police and his family searched frantically for him, but it was as if he had vanished into thin air. There were no clues, no witnesses, and no trace of the boy. What investigators didn't know was that the boy was in fact alive. And not only was he alive, but he was now being forced to endure the unthinkable. Years later, that boy, now a man, would become a powerful victim's advocate and would lead a campaign to change legislation to better protect children from predators. This is the story of Paul Martin Andrews, the boy in the box. The theme of this season is captivity. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick, and this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. Thursday the 11th of January 1973 was extremely cold. A heavy belt of snow extended from North Carolina to Virginia. The city of Norfolk, Virginia saw 9 inches or 23 centimetres of snow, the heaviest single snowfall residents had seen since 10 years earlier in 1963. Carly Simon's You're So Vain topped the music charts in the United States. And the Sam Peckinpah-directed heist film The Getaway was number one at the box office. In less than two weeks, President Richard Nixon would announce that a peace agreement had been reached in Paris to formally end the Vietnam War. Across the river from Norfolk, in the independent city of Portsmouth, schoolchildren were enjoying a rare snow day. Schools in the area had temporarily closed, and children and teenagers were reveling in the freedom of a full day of unstructured time stretching before them. No school, no teachers, no chores, and in many cases, no parents. Gen X kids were used to spending large chunks of time unsupervised. As long as they were home before the streetlights came on, and their chores and homework were done, few questions about their day were asked by the adults around them. Paul Martin Andrews was approximately three blocks from his home when a blue Ford van pulled up beside him. The 13-year-old had been on his way to a local convenience store to buy milk. He didn't use his first name and usually went by Martin or Marty to friends and family. The driver of the van introduced himself to Martin as Pee-wee. He asked Martin if he would like to make a little bit of money. 
This wasn't unusual for the time. Children were encouraged to work and to make their own money by doing odd jobs. Many had early morning paper rounds or delivered milk or similar regular part-time paid gigs. Stranger danger had not yet caught on as a widespread concept and children were raised to respect and obey all adults around them, regardless of whether they had earned that respect or not. Pee-wee offered Martin a cash payment if he'd be willing to help him move some furniture at his brother's home. Martin agreed and got into the stranger's vehicle. Pee-wee drove Martin about 30 minutes south to Dismal Swamp State Park, a forested wetland that straddled the border between Virginia and North Carolina. The man was friendly and affable. He engaged the child in conversation for the duration of the drive. Eventually, he pulled into an isolated logging road, but encountered an unexpected obstacle. The road was closed. A heavy chain with a padlock blocked the path. Martin later said that this minor inconvenience rattled Pee-wee. He saw a flash of anger move over his face. The man persuaded Martin to exit the vehicle. They would take the rest of the journey on foot. He assured the boy that it wasn't far. He explained that his brother had a deer box nearby, a buried structure similar to a hunting blind. Here, hunters could store supplies in preparation for hunting season and could stalk prey for long periods of time without being seen. Many kinds of hunting blinds are actually illegal in the US and in a lot of other countries, but this was 1973. The rules were a little bit different then. Pee-wee said that they had to deliver supplies to the deer box and that his brother kept a key in the box that would open the chain that was cutting off the road. Martin watched Pee-wee disappear around the back of the van to retrieve the supplies. Martin later said that along with the supplies, he also watched Pee-wee remove a large butcher's knife from the van. Pee-wee seemed completely unconcerned about whether Martin saw the knife or not. He wrapped his jacket around the blade and directed Martin to the woods. Martin said that his intuition that something wasn't quite right was off the charts. He said, quote, At that moment, every bell and whistle was going off in my head, and yet I continued to follow him down this path. End quote. The two abandoned the van and began the short hike into the woods. When they arrived at the site, Martin saw mounds of dirt with a partially concealed metal hatch glistening in the snow. The hatch led to a plywood box buried in the ground. Little did the teenager know that this deer box did not belong to Pee-wee's brother at all, but had been meticulously planned, built and sunk into the ground by the man standing next to him. The wooden box measured 1.2 by 2.2 metres, with a height of 1.2 metres. For anyone who doesn't use the metric system, that's approximately 4 by 7 feet, with a height of approximately 4 feet. Pee-wee opened the box by lifting the small metal hatch in the roof that sat at ground level. Inside the hatch opening, a large blue plastic tarp covered the floor of the box. 
Inside, there were sleeping bags and some other supplies already there. He instructed Martin to climb inside to help him bring in the supplies. Once inside the box, the man who had called himself Pee-wee drastically changed his demeanour. He produced the large butcher's knife he had earlier concealed with his jacket. The blade was long and extremely sharp. He said to Martin, quote, I've got bad news for you. You've just been kidnapped. End quote. When Martin heard these words, he had a sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach. These words proved his intuition had been right all along. He said that his blood ran cold. He was consumed with an instinct to flee and to get out of there as quickly as he could. Martin began to struggle with his assailant. He tried to wrestle the knife from Peary's grip. Before he could grasp it, the man who had lured him this far from home punched him square in the face. Understandably, at that point, Martin stopped fighting. He said that he knew that the man now had him under his control. Paul Martin Andrews was born in Virginia in 1959. Along with his parents and younger sister Jennifer, the Andrews family had recently moved to the city of Portsmouth. The 11th of January 1973 was the second snow day in a row that Martin and Jennifer were enjoying away from school. Martin told his sister that he was going to the nearby store to buy milk. When he didn't return, Jennifer began to worry. She soon alerted their parents, who subsequently called the police. The search effort to find the missing 13-year-old was both comprehensive and thorough. Police began a grid search. They interviewed neighbours and scouted for potential witnesses. One theory that police followed was that Martin had possibly accidentally drowned. The cities of Portsmouth and Norfolk are traversed by several waterways and river systems. So this theory wasn't a huge leap for police. The local Coast Guard drained a nearby waterway and the fire department conducted an aerial search in a helicopter. But no traces of Martin were found. Please be aware that this next section deals with sexual assault and abuse of a child. As always, I try my best not to dwell on specific details. These stories are not about the details, but there are some broader strokes that I need to include to fully tell the story. If you would prefer not to hear about this, please skip ahead approximately two and a half minutes. The box was damp and cramped. It wasn't possible to stand straight unless you were standing between the area below the open hatch. Half in, half out. You could only sit, kneel or lie down. Pee-wee immediately ordered Martin to strip naked and lie on his stomach in the box. Martin later described what happened to him directly after being confined to the box. He said that Pee-wee told him, quote, what's going to happen, you're not going to like, end quote. He threatened him with the large knife. According to Martin, the man covered him in Vaseline and proceeded to sexually assault him. 
He would sexually assault him four separate times that first day alone. The rapes would become a daily occurrence for Martin for the duration of his captivity. Some reports suggest that he was raped at least three times per day during every day of his captivity. The final rape occurred on the eighth day, just before Peewee left Martin alone in the deer box for the very first time. For Martin, these assaults were, quote, always brutal, always at the point of that knife, always with the threat of death if I didn't cooperate, end quote. He says that the knife became a symbol for his ordeal and that a handsome more than any other part of what he went through. It was what Peewee used to intimidate him and what kept Martin from attempting to run. Peewee also reportedly told Martin that this was not the first time that he had abused a child. He took great pleasure in detailing to the boy he had chained and bound in the underground box about how he had abused and tortured other children. When he wasn't assaulting Martin, Peewee kept the boy bound with his foot shackled to a chain attached to the plywood wall. As one day bled into another, Martin was gradually unchained for short periods of time and allowed out of the box. This was usually to keep the fire going and prepare food. It was always with the threat of imminent death and the threat of the 30 centimeter blade that Peewee carried with him at all times. In addition to assaults of a sexual nature, he also beat Martin most days, seemingly for no reason other than he could. Peewee told Martin that if he tried to run away, he would hang him from a tree with the chain and beat him to death. Martin began to notice subtle changes in his captor's behaviour. He became convinced that Peewee intended to murder him and dispose of his body, but he also sensed that his abductor hadn't quite figured out the mechanics of how he would do it. Martin later said that Peewee was, quote, working himself up to kill me, and I don't think he could. He never saw the end game. End quote. Martin recognized a sliver of hesitation in his captor and decided to exploit that thread to further humanize himself in the eyes of his abductor. It was the right move in those circumstances, and if anything, may have bought him some additional time that he otherwise wouldn't have had. He didn't resist the physical attacks or other assaults. He complied with all of his captor's demands. He also began to engage Peewee in conversation, all with the objective of making it more difficult for Peewee to follow through and kill him. On Wednesday the 19th of January 1973, exactly eight days after his abduction, Martin found himself alone in the box. It was still bitterly cold outside, and the trees and ground were covered in a blanket of snow. The ground was partially frozen in places. Peewee had left him and he didn't know if or when he would return. He also didn't know if he would ever see the light of day again. He didn't know if Peewee would find the resolve to actually end his life right there in the plywood box where he had already taken so much from the boy. 
Before he left, Pee-wee beat Martin so severely that he left lasting injuries. Martin said that Pee-wee knelt over him and fixed his eyes directly onto his face before beating him with his fist. The man went back and forth, punching him in the face with both fists and yelling at him. By the time the assault was over, Martin had a cracked tooth, two black eyes and a broken nose. He said that after this attack, he was hurting very bad. When he was alone, his thoughts turned to his mother. He wondered if she would be worried or crying, not knowing where he was. What bothered him most about his predicament was that his mother would know that he was gone, but would never know what happened to him. He knew that not knowing would probably kill her. He didn't know if Pee-wee had abandoned him to slowly rot in the box, or if his captor would return. Martin said that for him, it wasn't so much about going home, it was about staying alive. At about 8am, Martin heard the sound of vehicles in the distance. Lying in a pitch black box in the ground, Martin began to believe that his mother had somehow found him and had come to take him home. It wasn't his mother. Martin tried to stand, but there wasn't enough space. One of his legs was chained behind him. He reached up to the hatch and was able to push it open slightly. He could see the tops of the mounds of dirt surrounding the box above ground. He also saw two trucks driving through the woods. He began screaming and banging and making as much noise as possible to attract the attention of the two drivers. It worked. The drivers apprehensively approached the metal door protruding from the dirt, guns in hand. They were hunters out to snare some rabbits. Instead, they found a battered and bruised child chained in a makeshift cell in the ground. Martin told them that he had been kidnapped. One of the hunters reportedly was so overcome with emotion at the sight of Martin, bloody and beaten in the ground, that he had to step away to compose himself. The police were informed of Martin's discovery and descended on Dismal Swamp State Park. Lewis Sweezy, a retired Navy Master Chief and one of the hunters who helped to rescue Martin that cold day in January 1973, recalls that he was, quote, chained to the back, lunging to get out like a trapped animal, end quote. Shockingly, and believe me, this part is infuriating. The police officers at the scene did not free Martin from the wooden box he had been kept in for the previous eight days. Martin was met not with compassion, but with a camera in his face. He was treated as an extension of the crime scene rather than the crime victim. We saw a similar approach to a victim in the episode covering Stephanie Slater. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and do that now. Police took extensive photographs of him still chained to the wall, still bruised, still with a busted nose. Eventually, they freed him and removed him from the box. They used bolt cutters to remove the chain. Speaking years later, 
Martin said that those photographs show the brutality of what he went through. Possibly in a way that just describing his ordeal would fall short of. Those photographs are available to view on the website propensitypod.com. The police put Martin in a squad car and drove him to Obesey Memorial Hospital, partly to receive medical attention and partly to reunite him with his mother Anne, who was a nurse and on shift at the time. Martin's family were shocked at his condition and even more shocked by what he had been through. Anne recalled that he looked filthy, exhausted, but that he was also excited. Martin's sister Jennifer appeared alongside Martin on a TV talk show years after his ordeal. Describing the moment she first saw him after his abduction, she said that, quote, he turned and looked at me and that's when the nightmare came true. His eyes were empty. He wasn't there. My strong, older brother was somebody else, end quote. Martin's family were eager to get him professional help to deal with what he'd been through, but their support plan did not work out as they had anticipated. Martin was connected with a psychiatrist. He even spent a little bit of time in a mental health facility. If you're anything like me, this part is going to make you quite angry. The psychiatrist that Martin was seeing flat out called him a liar. He felt that his story was so unbelievable that it had to be fabricated, despite the physical and forensic evidence to suggest otherwise. He told Martin's parents that they should have him institutionalised, although we don't know what his justification for that was, other than his own personal bias. Martin overheard a police officer say to his parents to carefully watch him, as he may become a child molester himself based on what he had been through. I just want to take a moment to state what a blatant misrepresentation of reality this view is. While it may be true that some violent and sexual offenders have had difficult childhoods marred by violence and abuse, this is usually only one single piece of the jigsaw in what caused them to offend. Mapping the causes of criminality, specifically with violent crimes, can be quite complex, and it can't be boiled down to a simplistic and inaccurate soundbite that someone heard and is now passing off as fact. People like this cause untold damage to other people. A history of abuse doesn't excuse the perpetrator of abuse in any way. And as we know, most people who've survived abuse have never and will never repeat that cycle. People like that police officer and that psychiatrist should not get away with making flippant and inaccurate comments like these that can negatively impact victims and their families for the rest of their lives. I wish this was the end of people failing Martin and his family, but unfortunately it isn't. Martin later said that his parents were told that he shouldn't speak about his experiences and that they shouldn't allow anyone else around him to bring it up. Martin said that his parents were told that, quote, if I wasn't allowed to speak about it, that I would forget about it, that it would just go away. And what happened over time was that everyone forgot about it, everyone 
except for me. End quote. After these negative experiences, Martin declined any further psychological help. He worried that he was damaged and if his parents knew the full extent of his trauma, they'd just send him away. This enforced silence around what was possibly the most life-altering experience that could happen to a child was incredibly damaging for Martin. He tried his best to move on from what had happened to him. He suppressed his memories knowing that there was no safe space to express them around him and that even if he could speak about it, no one else would probably understand. When he was 19, Martin decided to move to Fort Lauderdale in Florida. He wanted to escape his past trauma and live somewhere where no one viewed him as a victim. He later moved closer to his family in North Carolina before ultimately returning to Florida and settling in Miami. In the days after Martin's release from the box, police interviewed him and took witness statements from the hunters who had found him in the woods. They asked Martin to review mugshots and before long he saw Pee-wee's dead eyes staring back at him. But his name wasn't Pee-wee at all. And this was not the first time he'd harmed a child. Virginia native Richard Alvin Osley was born in 1939. By the time Osley encountered Martin Andrews on a Portsmouth street in January 1973, he was already a prolific child sex offender. In 1961, Osley approached a 10-year-old boy at a recreation centre and asked him to help him fix his car. Of course, now we know what a major red flag this is. Adults should never ask a child for help. An adult does not need the help of a child in almost every circumstance you can think of. Unfortunately, this wasn't always as widely known. This next part is short, but it is difficult to listen to. Osley then drove the child to an isolated area where he sodomized him. After repeatedly assaulting him over the course of hours, Osley hogtied the child and left him bound and naked in the woods. Osley had thrown the boy into a watery ditch, not caring whether he lived or died. As far as Osley was concerned, he was finished with the child. He discarded him in the ditch like he was a piece of trash he needed to get rid of. The boy spent a long, dark night trying to get himself out of the ditch to flag down someone to help him. Eventually, he was successful. Osley was charged for his abduction. A Suffolk Circuit Court judge oversaw Osley's conviction for abduction and kidnapping and sentenced him to a prison term. He served 10 years for that crime but was released early on parole. There were at least two prior offences recorded before the 1961 charge, but it's not known if charges were brought against him for those offences. There are likely countless other victims who never came forward. On the day that Osley abducted Martin, he had been due in court on charges of raping a 14-year-old boy. Obviously, he didn't turn up to court that day and instead opted to put the plan he had been ruminating on for so long into action. 
Osley was a boatyard worker. He had carpentry skills and had scouted the woods for an isolated spot in which to conceal the plywood box he would later build. He took the time to measure and dig the hole in the ground. It's likely that the mounds that Martin described as surrounding the box were from the dirt that had been removed from the ground to make space for the wooden box. It's also likely that Osley chose uneven ground to better conceal the box. There was a lot of premeditation involved here. Osley had offended before, repeatedly. Abducting a child to keep them captive over several days and weeks fulfilled a sick fantasy of his. It also represented an escalation of his behaviour, making him even more dangerous than he had been before. After Martin had identified Osley as the man who'd abducted and assaulted him, police set out to locate their suspect. Osley was arrested after he returned to the home he shared with his father. In fact, his father had been the one to call the FBI to report that his son had returned home in the early hours of the morning. At trial, Martin was scheduled to testify in court as a key witness against Osley. Martin says that he remembers walking into the courtroom and seeing his former captor. He remembers Osley staring at him. Quote, his eyes never really left me. End quote. Richard Osley was sentenced to 48 years in prison for Martin's abduction and assaults. But Martin's interaction with his abductor was far from over. In June 2002, Martin received a phone call from his mother Anne to inform him that Richard Osley was likely to be released on parole. Martin said, quote, To hear that this man, this man who had done such horrible things to me, this man that I thought would be in prison for the rest of his life, that I would never have to deal with him, was now being released. I was horrified. End quote. Martin was now living in Miami and working as a computer programmer. He had also met the man who would become his future spouse, Mark Levi, in a Miami nightclub in 1980. As a teenager, Martin had begun to realise that he was gay, but was unable to process what that could mean for him or express it to anyone around him. He felt that he now had two secrets to keep. While he became more comfortable with his sexuality, he never spoke of his abduction. In fact, his husband and friends in Miami never even knew that he'd been abducted. He says that from the outside, his life looked picture perfect, but on the inside, he was being torn apart. Osley served his sentences across several prisons, including correctional centres and prisons in Mecklenburg, Brunswick and Sussex. The latter would be where he would meet a violent end at the hands of his new cellmate, Dewey Keith Venable. After serving 30 years of his 48-year sentence, Osley was eligible for parole. Martin had become active in his local Presbyterian church and felt called to a higher purpose. He believed that he'd been saved all of those years ago to do something greater than himself. He was also convinced that if released, Osley would be a danger to other children. After being forced into silence for almost three decades, 
Martin went public with his story. He began to vigorously campaign for funding for the Civil Commitment of Sexually Violent Predators Act. Under this law, an inmate would have a probable cause hearing 10 months before they're due to be released to decide their fate. If the court decided that they were not suitably rehabilitated and still posed a danger to the public, they could be confined to a state mental facility indefinitely. The Civil Commitment of Sexually Violent Predators Act was passed into law in 1999. But Martin and other activists campaigned for better funding and to ensure that sections of the bill were rewritten to be constitutionally sound. As a consequence of Martin speaking publicly about his ordeal, another of Osley's victims, Gary Founds, came forward. Founds had been repeatedly sexually assaulted by Osley in 1972, but charges were never made against him for this crime. In fact, Gary was just one of three members of his family who'd been sexually abused by Osley. At the time of Martin's abduction, Osley was also abusing the children of a second family. Despite the work Martin had done to campaign for the Civil Commitment Act, in the end it wasn't applied to Osley. Instead, charges were filed for the crimes against Gary, and an additional five years was added to Osley's existing sentence. When developing this podcast concept, it was really important to me to give a voice to victims and survivors. The perpetrators don't deserve to be heard. I won't be their voice and I won't give them the infamy that so many of them crave. Of course, there are a few exceptions to this. For example, if the perpetrator says something so outrageous and far from the reality of the situation that it borders on fantasy and of course is relevant, or if they've said something in the commission of the crime being committed. And I only tell you about this so I can tell the victim's story in a fuller way. In Richard Osley's case, this exception falls to the former. Osley courted the news media and was interviewed many times. I'm going to share some of his quotes with you just so you can see the absurdity of what he had to say. I feel that this demonstrates the lengths that perpetrators will go to and the lies that they will tell even to themselves to justify their depravity. After his additional sentence began, Osley spoke to the media. He framed himself as Martin's victim. Rather than recognising the reality of the situation and what he'd done to Martin in that box, Osley told the cameras that his life was now over. He said that Martin saw to that. He said, quote, I will be his victim for the rest of my life or his, end quote. Speaking directly to Martin through the camera, Osley made the following bizarre statement. Quote, what can I do, man? Just tell me, what do you want? If you want me to spend the rest of my life in here, fine. If you want me to get out of here and be your personal slave for the rest of your life, hey, I'll do that. If you want me to lick your shoes every night, I'll do that. Just tell me what you want, man. End quote. You can actually find this clip in the sources I've used for this episode. If you do watch it, you'll see that Osley speaks with such anger and venom in his voice. He acts as if Martin is the very reason for his incarceration 
and not the abhorrent crimes he repeatedly chose to inflict on multiple children. Jans Saring is a convicted former murderer. You can read about his story by following some of the links that are in my sources on the website. Soaring was incarcerated in the same facility as Osley for some of their respective sentences. He wrote an article from prison in 2004 for the Washington City paper. Soaring, the Thai-born son of a German diplomat, moved to the United States permanently with his family in 1977. At the time, he was 11 years old. He and his girlfriend Elizabeth Hasem were convicted for the 1985 murders of Elizabeth's parents Derek and Nancy. Jens was convicted for the murders, which he continues to deny, and Elizabeth for two counts of accessory to murder before the fact. Jens described Osley as an acquaintance rather than a friend. He says he saw him around the prison and that Osley attempted to speak to him on several occasions. He paints a picture of a very sad individual. At barely 5 feet or 1.53 metres in height, Osley cut a pitiful figure and was frequently targeted by other inmates. Inmates who were disgusted with his prior crimes. According to Jens, child sex offenders were frequently raped by other inmates and prison guards usually facilitated this by turning a blind eye while someone was being attacked. He says that, quote, From what other convicts who did time with Osley in the 70s and 80s tell me, he had a very rough life indeed behind bars, end quote. Jens says that according to his sources, other inmates, quote, wanted to hurt him, and they did, on a regular basis for decades. End quote. While incarcerated at Mecklenburg, a medium security prison in the early 80s, Jens describes how Osley paid a gang of young white convicts protection money to ensure that the attack stopped. He earned this protection money by selling acrylic paintings that he produced in his prison cell and were sold anonymously by a Virginia gallery. By 2002, Osley was two years into the SORT or Sex Offender Residential Treatment Program at Brunswick, a rehabilitation program to help reduce the chances of reoffending and prepare inmates for life outside of prison. Jens believes that civil commitment is not the solution that many believe it to be. He says that, quote, What civil commitment does, in effect, is absolve society from figuring out how to reintegrate men like Osley, end quote. After Osley was convicted of abducting and assaulting Gary Founds, he was removed from the SORT program and transferred to Sussex, a high-security prison to serve out the five-year sentence. In 2004, Dewey Keith Venable was a 24-year-old inmate serving an 18-year sentence for carjacking, abduction and robbery. He'd previously been victimised by a paedophile. Venable had reportedly warned prison guards not to place him in a cell with Osley or with any other convicted child molester. According to Venable, correctional officers threatened to place him in solitary confinement if he refused his new cell assignment. In January 2004, Osley was murdered in his cell by Venables. A lot of people who had read Jens Soring's 2004 article, including Martin, felt that it unfairly portrayed Osley as a victim. 
a victim either of his childhood or of other inmates. Martin felt compelled to write a retort to Counter Soaring's account, which he felt was incomplete. In this article, in the same publication, Martin described Richard Osley as being, quote, a monster. Of Osley, he said that he was, quote, not some pitiful old paedophile who was of no harm to anyone, end quote. He added, quote, his reign of terror began at a very early age and continued up to the very end of his life. He never took any responsibility for any of his crimes and even continued to blame me. He never showed any remorse for the harm he had caused his victims. His only concern in life was for himself and his own evil desires. End quote. Martin stated that life in prison can be dangerous, but he reiterated the fact that Osley was not a victim there. In fact, he thrived. He became kind of a prison pimp, facilitating sexual favours between inmates for a fee. Martin also countered Yen's assertion that society was shirking its responsibilities to violent sexual offenders. He states that society, quote, does not have a responsibility to contrive a way to reintegrate the Richard Osleys of this world into itself. These offenders have no place among us, end quote. An autopsy found that Osley's cause of death was strangulation and blunt force trauma to the torso. Upon hearing about Osley's death, Martin explained that he was conflicted over the news. He said, I did what I did to keep him off the street. Nobody deserves to be murdered. While the plywood box was removed and dismantled after Martin's rescue, the hole in the ground in the woods of Dismal Swamp State Park that was Martin's cell for those eight days remains exactly where Richard Osley dug it. According to a 2021 article by Nicholas Lanham, Martin was asked if he had any wish to return to, quote, stand in that hole after all those years, end quote. This strikes me as a strange and invasive question that was entirely unnecessary to ask of someone who had already survived so much. Nonetheless, Martin responded that some scars don't heal. He added that, quote, it's hard to believe that after 50 years, that hole is still there. I have a scar on me as well, end quote. In an interview, Martin said that he felt it necessary to remind people that his story happened. He said that these things, these horrible things happen to children. And if you allow sex offenders to roam freely after having committed multiple offences, they will do it again. Martin spoke to the complicated relationship someone might have with their abuser. Children are usually dependent on the adults in their lives. Martin believes that this is true regardless of whether that adult is, quote, their assaulter, their abuser, or their abductor. He says that regardless of the relationship or how badly hurt they are, the child will still cling to that person to survive. For Martin, child sexual abuse is not a crime that happens and then it's over. He says that this kind of crime, quote, stays with those children for the rest of their lives. They will live that moment, they will live with that assault, that degradation, end quote. When Martin spoke out about his ordeal, 
He was speaking for every abused child. He continues to be an advocate for survivors. I want to end this episode with a powerful quote from Martin. In it, he says, If there's anything that I could say to children who are being abused, who've been abused, to adults who were abused as children, is that as long as you keep it to yourself, they get away with what they've done. You've done nothing wrong. You have nothing to be ashamed of. And you can take hope that there can be a life that you can live without that fear. You can live without that pain. This podcast was written, researched, produced and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources and images can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, hit subscribe so you never miss another episode. 